0: for His great love for us this day. Well, at this time, those who are young in age, or those who just want to sneak out, may head off to godly play and other children's activities. Though if you are older than fifth grade, we will look at you and judge. For those who remain, I would invite you to join me in two passages of Scripture. So, if you on your uh, Bibles or electronic devices can find both Mark's Gospel and James, the Epistle to James. Uh, it's page 43 in my Bible, if that helps you. Doesn't? Okay. Mark's Gospel we'll read first, beginning in the 24th verse of the seventh chapter Hear now the word of the Lord. From there he, and and he here is Jesus, if, if you were curious, from there Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. And he went into a house and did not want anyone to know where he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin, and she begged him, to cast out the demon from her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found the child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took the man aside and put his fingers away from the crowd and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched the man's tongue Then looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed and said to the man, Ephetha, which that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he began to speak plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. But the more he ordered him, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Turn with me now to James chapter 2. James 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our Lord, glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing fine clothes and say, Here, have this seat, please. While to the one who is poor you say, Stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is is it not they who blaspheme in the the excellent name that is invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who says you shall not commit adultery also says you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty for judgment will without mercy for judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has not shown mercy mercy triumphs judgment what good is it my brothers and sisters if you say you have faith but do not have works can faith save you if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them go in peace keep warm and eat your fill but you do not supply their bodily needs. What is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Now, O Lord, send forth your word alive and active, the very same Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power and inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear this day and that we might be changed. Amen. (laughs) I have to uh, admit something to you today. Confession is good for the soul. And, and it's something more than just the fact that I forgot my mic and right as service was starting, I was panicking because I didn't have it, and it's like my comforts, my safety blanket. No, what I have to confess to you today is far more tragic. It will cause many of you to have your confidence in me shaken. I dread that I have a uh, pastoral review coming up this summer for I know that what I'm about to say will linger in your minds, and you will judge me harshly. But so be it. Here it is. From time to time, I get in a bad mood. I know, I know, you're saying, no, no, not you. Not you, and, but yes, it is true. There are mornings when I wake up on the wrong side of the bed. There are days when I go about with a rain cloud above my head. There are times when I kick the children and yell at the dog. Growing up in in my house, it it would always cause a fight if you accused another member of the ward house of being in a bad mood. Like, it wasn't just enough that they were in a bad mood. They didn't want to be accused of being in a bad mood. And so we developed this little linguistic strategy to not, to not actually name that fact. We would call it being in a, a phase. I don't know where we got that, but that's what we would say. Don't bother dad. He's in a phase. JJ, don't annoy your older sister. She's in a phase. Which is the exact opposite thing you want to tell a little brother. It's like catnip to them. If you tell someone, you know, that just they just your eyes go... That's right. Well, I went through a a phase this week. I was not in a good mood. And then in my study I I came to this passage in Mark and it made me so happy. It brightened my day because I love this story read about Jesus because i see in jesus in mark chapter 7 someone who is grumpy someone who is silent someone who is off in the corner brooding okay okay brooding might be a little far but it's it seems to me you know jesus doesn't really show any emotions he he does sigh in the second half of the passage but but i like to imagine jesus here as as being grumpy I love the image of the Savior of the world, the Lord God himself, in a bad mood. We all get in a bad mood from time to time. Every once in a while. And it makes me, for one, feel good to know that that Jesus himself got grumpy. Now, now the Bible doesn't say he was grumpy explicitly. but, But how could he not be? Just look at what he says. He's he's going about the countryside trying not to be noticed. And in the moment when he's trying not to be noticed, he is noticed. He's found out. And this woman rushes up to him and begins to plead and beg him. And what does he say to her? He says, get away from me. I came to feed children, not dogs. The writer Philip Yancey sees this as a joke a game that the Lord is playing with an ironic twinkle in his eyes. And there is this long true rabbinical tradition of of the rabbi and the the learner sitting together and and exchanging these linguistic barbs as a way of, of edification and learning, the verbal fencing match. But I don't think I agree. I see it as someone who hasn't slept very well for a few days. I see him as someone who's been pestered constantly for a month on end. I I see it as someone whose only companions for the last year of his life have been smelly, whining fishermen who just had had enough. I see it as a guy who's trying to get away, to fly under the radar for just a few moments to relax and recuperate. Recuperate? I see it as the guy who's having yet another vacation ruined by work. And so here is grumpy Jesus, and here is a a lady, a a Gentile lady, a lady with that crazy kid that's always messing up class, that kid who always has an excuse for their behavior. And, And maybe it's just me. But as I'm reading the Gospel of Mark, I get the distinct feeling that Jesus doesn't like her very much. He does, after all, insinuate that she's a dog, which, in case you didn't know, was an insult back in that day just as much as it is today. People don't like being called female dogs. It's not a nice word. He puts her off and he puts her down. And even after she persists and and keeps begging, he kind of dismisses her and says, fine, if you put it that way, go on home, your daughter's all better. Grumpy Jesus. His mood doesn't seem to improve in the next story either. Some time has passed, he's heading home from vacation, which, by the way, is the worst trip in the history of the world. After you've been on vacation, you've got to drive back to your same boring life and all of the responsibilities and emails that you ignored for a week, they've piled up. Nobody else fixed those problems. He's walking along on the way and this group of people stop him with their deaf, mute friend and they ask a favor. Mark uses the word again. They they begged. To his credit, Jesus helps this time without insulting the man. He's learning. He's growing but he does sigh, and he spits. Usually people don't sigh when they're bubbling up with joy on the inside. Jesus in Mark chapter 7 is a little grumpy. He doesn't seem to like these people very much, which if we're honest, it it causes us a little bit of a problem. Just, Just a little bit, right? You, you probably woke up this morning and when you think about God, you think about those phrases that, that, that God is love, that God is compassion, that God is merciful. And when you think about God's mercy and you look at these two people, these are the exact type of people that God's mercy, God's love, God's, God's compassion is supposed to be for. A Gentile woman with a sick child, a blind, mute man. These are the very people we think Jesus came to help. If Jesus isn't going to befriend these two, who will? It's a problem. God is love. God so loved the world, Jesus wants to be your boyfriend. Apparently, though, God doesn't love everyone in the world. Or at least He doesn't love everyone in the same way. And I think that... That kind of idea. God doesn't love everyone in the same way. That's where this story from James kind of starts crawling in my uh, brain. story starts with this image, or the teaching, I guess, starts with an image. Of a man walks into the back of church, and he's stopped right there in the foyer. And the usher notices his fine Armani suit, his nice, freshly shined Kenneth Cole shoes. He looks out the window and he sees that Italian car. And he whisks that man right to the good seats in the very back of the church. Seats that you all fight for. After a little bit, a woman comes in. Her hair is unwashed, her dress is in tatter. She's wearing white shoes after Labor Day. And with a suspicious eye, the usher points down front in this section. People avoid like the plague. James shakes his head. And he says, you stupid church. A, don't you know that rich people cause all of the problems in the world? Verse 5. Verse 6, excuse me. And B, don't you know that God has chosen the poor to be heirs of His kingdom? And look how you treat them. You know, growing up in our culture, we have this image of, of justice. She's a blind lady or a lady with a blindfold on. She's not. She could be seeing, I guess, but she's wearing a blindfold and she's holding a scale in one hand and a, and a sword in the other one. And we, we know that justice isn't actually blind. We, we know that the guy who has the, the money for the lawyer is going to win, but that idea is there that we have this impartial judge standing before us, that all people are created equal. And we get that idea and we come to bring it to Jesus. And we hear James, and I think what we hear is, good Christian, make sure you treat all people fairly. Rich or poor, when they come in, it makes no difference. We're all the same. And there's nothing wrong with that. Even-handedness is a virtue, I guess. But James is actually saying something in this passage that's far more dangerous. God isn't blind. God isn't impartial. God has made a choice. Verse 5, Do you know, Don't you know that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith, to be heirs in His kingdom? That divine choice has some bite to it. It stings a bit. Are we, those of us who are middle class Gentiles that we are, are are we more uncomfortable with this idea of God not choosing the Gentiles, choosing the Jews back in the Jesus day, or with God choosing the poor? Either way you slice it, it ain't us. We're second-class citizens. We're latecomers to the party. We just barely squeak in right before the doors are closed and locked. We don't belong. There was this little uh, bit in Sesame Street. All, All important things in life are learned in Sesame Street. A little bit in Sesame Street where they would flash the screen and it would be divided into four parts. It'd be a circle, a triangle, a square, and an eggplant. And a little song would play underneath that and it would say, One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. And then the kids would yell out, Which one didn't belong? That's us. We're the eggplant. We don't fit. We are not like the others. We are not chosen. And so often in our culture, in our our history, our evangelical brothers and sisters, they like to walk around like they own the place. Way back in 1630, there was a Puritan pastor named John Winthrop. He he was leading the very first Puritans out of England, and they were going to sail across the ocean. Before they even got on their boat, the Arabellum, he preached a sermon. And he said, the new land that we're going to found in America, that continent over there, it's going to be a special place, a city built on a hill, chosen by God. And various political leaders through the years have referred to that sermon to talk about how special we are, how honored and good we are. And it makes us feel good. We're good enough. We're smart enough. And doggone it, God likes us. We belong in this kingdom. And I hate to tell you this morning, my friends, but that's a load of hogwash. We don't belong. We're, we're not chosen. And ironically, I think that message, that you don't belong in here, is one of the best self-help sermons you will hear all year. Rick Warren out in uh, Saddleback, he wants to, you to know that you have a purpose, a uh, Robert Schuller wants you to have self-esteem. I saw this week that Jim Baker wants you to buy some kind of silver solution to stop coronavirus. I, your pastor, want you to know that you don't belong, that you're not chosen, and Jesus probably doesn't like you. Feel good about yourself. And that's a good thing. When I was uh, 13 or so, I guess, my, my father took me to a Star Trek convention. He, uh, he read voraciously from science fiction, and he would go to these things across the Southeast, Dragon Con and Omega Con and all these different things, and, and this one was in Columbia, and so, so it was my turn to go. I, um, this was back, obviously, before Hollywood had discovered that nerds could get money out of them, and so it, it wasn't cool back then. Cosplay wasn't culturally acceptable like it is now. And so I, being young and impressionable, I walked into the Star Trek convention and I saw people dressed up like a Vulcan with the pointy ears. Saw a lady who had painted her face blue. There there was a group of people over in the corner in Star Trek uniforms that were speaking Klingon to each other. I felt out of place, which isn't that uncommon for a 13-year-old or for me, a 40-year-old. But here's the thing. When you're out of place, when you're in a a situation that you don't belong, there's a strange grace. There's a giftedness. You can't play favorites. Sitting in that great room or standing in that great room, I was not in a position to be able to choose where I wanted to go. Do I go hang out with the people watching the Japanese cartoons? Do I go over to the lecture on on Gene Roddenberry's Simonic futurism? Do I go hang out with the people in the back who are playing board games? It's all unfamiliar. It's all strange. It's all weird. When you don't belong, you can't play favorites. This week, more than anything else in this passage, what really nagged me in James was that opening verse. Do you, brothers and sisters with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Does your snobbery, your selfish choosing, one group over another, show that you believe in Jesus? Are you a doer of the Word? And what really bothered me is because like most of you, I've I've been in church for a day or two. I've gotten comfortable in this place. I've found my favorite seat that fits me just right and is the exact distance from the pulpit that I like. I've put my feet up and let my hair down, and I belong here. And once you start belonging, you start picking, you start playing favorites. And that's not doing the word. there is some good news this morning but i'm not sure it's something we want to hear you see that syrophoenician woman that blind and deaf man they they both get jesus help he, he didn't choose them he may not have even liked them but he helps each of them because they beg Both of my kids went through a stage when they would get something in their head that they wanted, they would just repeat it over and over and over and over and over again. I I see some smiles, some nods out there. Some of you have have heard this stage before. I want a drink. I want a drink. Daddy, I want some drink. Daddy, apple juice. Daddy, apple juice. Apple juice. Apple juice. Apple juice. Actually, I'm not sure it's so much a stage because I'm still waiting for them to grow out of it. There are times when I'll be off doing something and my head will be somewhere else and I won't hear either of them and they will just keep asking, keep whining, keep begging. There is in children this instinctive knowledge of how to nag. Maybe that's why Jesus, when He's teaching, He he holds up the little child and He says, all of you wise and sophisticated folk with your degrees and your ages, you need to become like that. Children don't suffer from any illusion of power or control. They know that everything they get is a gift. Way up on that top shelf, beyond their reach, that must be handed down to them. Somewhere along the way, we start growing up and we get an allowance or we get a job and we see that first paycheck. And we start to think of ourselves as those who acquire, those who get, those who obtain. And we forget how to beg. And then one day you're going through your life and you come face to face with this God who can't be bribed, who can't be bought, who can't be acquired. Everything's going fine, and then we find out that we, in fact, don't belong here. We're not privileged. We don't have a birthright or a pedigree. And so we, too, must come to that place where we beg. The early monks, those who felt God calling them away from their world of luxury and ease, they left their homes and they went about door to door begging for bread. Took vows of poverty to not own anything. And they have this crazy idea that by begging on earth for things like their daily bread, they might learn how to beg of God for things like salvation. I, I said this is something you may not want to hear. Because if begging is what is required of us who are not heirs, then we're in trouble. Most of us this morning have not visited a food pantry or struggled to pay the light bill or or fought to get on Medicaid. And those who have, who carry those memories, often feel them with shame and embarrassment. It is a part of their past or their present that they try to hide. Because when you're in that place, You beg. Begging means you have no other recourse, no other appeal, no other help, and it puts you completely at the mercy of someone else. And it just so happens to be the exact place where God hears and heals. When we pray, we we try to sound proper before God. We try to sound eloquent and, and use the right words and, and put it in the right way and make sure that God is impressed by our these and our thous. Jesus says not to do it, but we do it anyway. We put on airs, pretentiously heap up words. God. But maybe the better path would just be to say simply, God, I need you. God, I need over and over and over again until our grumpy Jesus hears and relents. James rhetorically asks in verse 14, Can fate save you? I don't know. But I just bet if we humble ourselves and if we beg... It can. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, we find ourselves in this strange place, your holy presence around us a place that we did not earn, a place that we cannot buy, a place that we didn't inherit. And yet, O God, You have bent low to be near. I pray, O God, that that strangeness, that grace would, would impact us this day. May the unfamiliarity puts us in a place of receptivity. And may we O oh God who so often are tempted to rely on ourselves to do and go get to buy and borrow. May we learn O oh Lord this day how to beg. And May.